Is this when I ask how about you? Yeah. So I was, uh, I was waiting for that and it just didn't come. <laughs> Professionalism. The Europolex podcast. It's where you find it. Welcome to the Europolex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy, and in this episode, we'll be speaking to the Vice President of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe and a German Member of Parliament, Dr. Andreas Nick, about what his institution does exactly, as well as to journalist Mirka Shirotnikova about the upcoming parliamentary election in Slovakia. With me, of course, is Europolex's own golden boy, Gabriel Hedengren. Hi, Ewan. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm well. Um, enjoying. It's a little bit of a quieter time at the moment in European politics. Yeah, yeah, it's quite nice. I feel like the end of last year was quite explosive and we've we've calmed down a little bit, but I feel like speaking too soon, maybe. Speaking too soon, maybe, but I mean, part of me hopes so, but (laughs) still, you know, enjoying enjoying the the lack of complete chaos at the moment. But uh, at least we have a lot going on with our podcast, right? We have some super cool interviews this week. Yeah, both uh, of them are really exciting. I'm very excited for both the interviews today. Yeah, me too, me too. Uh, so much for us to learn from all these experts and they want to talk to us. It's great. But before we go into that, uh, I think uh, we should definitely go through some podcast news again this week, just to give you all an update of uh, some of the latest political and electoral developments from across our lovely continent. So first off, Hamburg had their uh, state elections this week in Germany. So their Germanist richest state and they went to the polls and delivered yet another thrilling election for us even to report on and analyze. So the big winners of the night there were the Greens uh, that more than doubled their parliamentary delegation and they will be be able to continue to govern the state together with the center-left Social Democratic Party, which, you know, managed in a weird way, I guess, while being the biggest relative loser election on election, still sort of come out of it in some sort of relief, as it remained the biggest party at 39%, which for a Social Democratic Party, uh, looking throughout Europe, is very high. There were many losers on the right side of the spectrum, however, uh, with the crisis written center-right Christian Democratic Union getting its second-worst result at a state-level vote ever in the party's history, and the right-wing alternative for Germany uh, seeing a small but still, at this point in time, quite an uncharacteristic decrease in vote share. Finally, the Liberal Free Democratic Party managed to lose all of its seats but one, falling below the 5% threshold. Uh, so yeah, yet another eventful state election in Germany. If you think you've got eventful regional elections in Germany, let me take you across to France, where we are preparing for the launch of local elections in all 35,000 French communes. So that includes the mayoralty of France's largest city, Paris and the incumbent uh, Anne Hidalgo uh, is the first woman to hold that position. She's running for re-election, leading a centre-left list. Now, centre-right uh, Les Républicains have announced their candidate for mayor as Rashida Dati. Uh, she's a former MEP. The party Les Républicains are the last party that's not the Party Socialiste to hold the mayoralty. They held it back in 2001, and so for the last 19 years, it's been held by the centre-left. Meanwhile. A little bit of scandal uh, in French politics, which obviously is sort of well known for. Uh, the candidate of French President uh, Emmanuel Macron's Liberal Party, La République en Marche, 
has uh, been forced to step down from his role as sort of the LOM candidate for the mayoralty because sexual images and messages from him were published online. So um, Benjamin Griveaux has, has complained about the images and has decried the attack on his personal life, uh, but he is no longer uh, LREM's candidate. The first round of the election will take place on the 15th of March. So obviously, LVM will have to appoint a new candidate and we'll see where things go from there. Yeah, follow your products to find out. <laughs> and from France, we're going back to Germany, where, uh, as you will remember, we reported on this in our last episode, uh, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, or AKK, has resigned as the incumbent's candidate for the next chancellor of Germany. And she's now the outgoing leader of the centrite CDU. Uh, which is Angela Merkel's party. Uh, naturally, as you can imagine, this has sparked an explosive leadership race, which will culminate in an extraordinary party convention on April 25th this year. Their front-running candidate uh, as of now is Friedrich Merz, who was a close second to AKK in the previous leadership election. Also running is Norbert Röttgen, who holds the title as the only minister Angela Merkel has sacked, actually. The minister-president of the German region of North Rhine-Westphalia, Armin Laschet, will also run for leadership. So, you know, this will undoubtedly have a huge impact on the future of Germany and therefore also Europe, as the winner of the leadership race will be immediately the most likely candidate to be Chancellor of Germany uh, at the end of Merkel's tenure uh, in 2021, when the next federal elections take place there. And finally, with the great European countries of Iowa, Nevada and New Hampshire, having had their Democratic primaries already uh, and Super Tuesday is not far away now, there is no better time to follow Europolex's sibling account, America Elie on Twitter for all of the latest updates. It's the second time I've had to do one of those. You should follow them instead of expect the results from us. I don't know. Do you think we'll ever talk about the American election on this podcast? I don't know, probably if we get a really good guest or something like that, maybe like Nate Silver. Oh, man, Nate Silver would be so good. Yeah, Yeah. we all are. It's it's like he's his little data queen. That's weird. Um, (laughs) um, I wonder, wonder, do you think anyone knows Michael Bloomberg? And he might be able to get him to to spend some money on buying an advert in this podcast. He's buying adverts everywhere else. Or anyone else who might want to advertise with us. Email is podcast at europlex.eu. We want to hear from you. Hit us up. Yeah, please. My inbox is so quiet. So what have you been up to this week, Gabriel? Who have you been interviewing? So I've been interviewing uh, Mirka Shirovnikova. Uh, so she's a journalist based in Bratislava, so out of Slovakia, and she's an expert uh, in Slovak politics. Slovakia will have a general election coming up uh, before the month is over, and uh, we wanted to speak to her, you know, to get a crash course on Slovak electoral politics. Um ahead of that. How about you? What have you been up to this week? I know you've been speaking to someone really cool. Yeah, I've been speaking to someone really exciting in transnational European politics, which is super exciting, but transnational that's not in the European Union. I've been delving into our friends at the Council of Europe. Um, but I suppose I'll just let me and, me and Dr. Andreas Nick give you all the lowdown on what I've been talking about. So listen to this interview. I'm now sitting down with Dr. Andreas Nick. Very happy to have him with me here today. He is the Vice President of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, or PACE for short, not to be confused, of course, with the European Council. Dr. Nick, how are you doing? Fine. Hello from Berlin. Yeah, hello. Um, So some of our 
audience might not be aware what the Council of Europe is. The Council of Europe is uh, not part of the European Union, and it includes 47 member states from across the European continent. The only countries that aren't members are the Vatican, Belarus, and the partially recognized states of Kosovo. They're the only European countries that aren't members. So, Dr. Nick, enlighten us. What does the Council of Europe do, and what's PACE's role in that? The Council of Europe is the oldest pan-European institution. It was set up in 1949 uh, to promote uh, cooperation and democracy in Europe after the horrible experience of the Second World War. Uh, it is has developed into the primary uh, guardian and watchdog of human rights, uh, the rule of law and pluralistic democracy in its uh, 47 member states with more than 800 million people. Uh, as you mentioned, this does not only include uh, the member states of the European Union, but uh, also uh, the Western Balkans, uh, the Caucasus, uh, as well as large neighbors as Russia, Ukraine and Turkey. Uh, protecting human rights is uh, at the heart of it. The European Convention for Human Rights is uh, giving each and every individual in the member states of the Council of Europe uh, certain protections and the right to appeal uh, to uh, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. And uh, one of uh, the preeminent roles of PACE is to uh, elect the 47 judges uh, in this court. Uh, so that is a very constitutive role in the, in the human rights protection system of the institution. Fantastic. So as you mentioned, it's not, not just the European Union. What is PACE's relationship with the European Union is obviously they're two organizations with massive transnational influence. I think clearly the European Union has a, has a broader mandate in terms of it deals a lot with economic issues, but uh, also uh, with uh, foreign policy issues. The uh, mandate of the Council of Europe is more uh, precisely, more narrowly defined. Nevertheless, there is a huge degree of cooperation. I think when it comes to issues of uh, rule of law or human rights. Um, uh, also, the European Union relies heavily on the resources and input from institutions within the Council of Europe. For example, the so-called Venice Commission, uh, the, the full name is the European Commission for Democracy Through Law. There's a lot of cooperation in these areas. And we are currently also in the process of discussing, finally, the accession of the European Union itself uh, to the European Convention of Human Rights, which would bring the institutions even closer together going forward. That's very interesting to hear that you're bringing the European Union closer in. Um, do you think that, you know, as the European Union joins the Parliamentary Assembly or over the coming years, do you think the Parli Parliamentary Assembly should have more power? What could that look like? I think, first of all, it's important to know that uh, PACE uh, has much more power and influence than any other comparable parliamentary assembly of any other international organization. As I mentioned, uh, the assembly uh, elects the judges on the European Court of Human Rights. It elects the secretary general, the deputy secretary general of the Council of Europe. It uh, elects uh, the European Commissioner for Human Rights. Uh, and uh, it uh, uh, operates so-called monitoring system where member states are under surveillance, to say, to name it that way, for their compliance with uh, the, the values and regulations that they have uh, subscribed to in the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, just so some of our listeners might more understand it, it's a lot like the Parliament of the European Union in the way that the 
uh, members organize. They sit as transnational groupings, according to ideology. You yourself are a member of uh, the Christian Democratic Union in Germany uh, and are a national MP for them. And you sit with the EPP group in PACE. How did you get involved in the Parliamentary Assembly? I think members of PACE are elected by the national parliament. Uh, in Germany, there is even a law regulating that procedure. Germany has 18 members and 18 substitutes. They are elected at the beginning of each parliamentary term, uh, and the seats are distributed according to the size of parliamentary groups in the German parliament. May I correct you? At one point, we are organized in political groups in the assembly, but we do not sit as political groups. All members sit in alphabetical order. It induces, I think, uh, a lot of cross-party and cross-national dialogue, which is one important aspect of the parliamentary assembly uh, uh, anyhow. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for correcting me. I, I didn't, didn't know that. Um, so there are 324 members in PACE. Um, what is a sort of typical role, the, the debating and the voting? And then perhaps what's your role further on as a vice president? I think the, the plenary of the parliamentary assembly meets four times a year for a whole week, uh, typically in January, uh, April, June and October in Strasbourg. Um, as this is a full-fledged parliament, we also have a, a set of eight or nine uh, committees in which members work. Uh, those uh, meet not only in the, in the session weeks in Strasbourg, but throughout the year, uh, uh, frequently in Paris, but also across uh, member states. This uh, includes the Political Affairs Committee, where I'm the first uh, vice chairperson at the moment. Uh, we have a committee on legal affairs and human rights, um, social affairs, migration, equality, uh, create also a rules committee. One well, of well, the most important is probably the so-called monitoring committee, uh, which is in charge of um, supervising uh, compliance of uh, member states uh, with uh, the rules and regulations of the Council of Europe when it comes to the convention, but also to the rule of law and pluralistic democracy. As a vice president, all in all 20 of us from the different national delegations, which rotate according to a quota system. Um, as a vice president, uh, you are in charge of uh, uh, replacing uh, the president of the assembly in chairing uh, meetings of the plenary in Strasbourg, which are typically to do uh, two or three times per session week, um, and also assist in some representative functions for the organization. Fascinating. So looking more deeply at the role of the Council of Europe, you mentioned about upholding the human rights and rule of law. And as Europe elects, we cover elections uh, across the continent. And one thing that we've been looking at very closely is democracy in Poland. Um, what is your, your assessment of the situation there under the National Conservative uh, Law and Justice Party? And we've just seen a very important development in the last session uh, in Strasbourg two weeks ago. Parliamentary Assembly had commissioned uh, a report by the Monitoring Committee on the function of democratic institutions in Poland. This was uh, presented uh, in the January session. Uh, and as a result of its findings, in particular with regard to the ongoing uh, pressure on uh, the independent judiciary, um, the PACE decided with an overwhelming majority to reopen the so-called full monitoring procedure for Poland. Uh, this is a very uh, significant event. Uh, monitoring has never before been reopened for a member state of the European Union. Uh, monitoring procedure typically foresees that states that join the Council of Europe develop through the full monitoring procedure and a post-monitoring dialogue into normal membership. 
So this is a very serious assessment of the situation in Poland, and it is uh, um, an important sign that the Council of Europe, let's say, fleshes its teeth to a certain extent mm. in being more vigorous and being the watchdog for uh, rule of law and um, human rights and pluralistic democracy throughout its member states. On that point, and just to finish up, controversially, last year, uh, PACE restored Russia's voting rights after a suspension following its annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. Was, in your belief, in and, and perhaps in the parliament's belief, was the restoration of voting rights the right call? And how do you see PACE's uh, relationship with Russia going forward, particularly as uh, relations in Crimea remain unresolved? Let me start, uh, start with uh, adding to the to this initial um, stage of what we were looking at. We had the situation that Russia was suspended in terms of its voting rights in the parliamentary assembly, but was still a full-fledged active member in the Committee of Ministers. And uh, the situation was under threat to develop to a point where Russia would have to uh, leave the Council of Europe uh, altogether. Uh, because also of uh, their withholding their, um, their membership freeze for, for more than two years because of the voting suspension. I think it was a very challenging and controversial process. I think at the end, uh, a significant majority of the assembly decided to send two messages. The first message is, we want Russia to be a part of Europe and a part of the Council of Europe. We want to safeguard uh, the right of 140 million Russians to uh, access also the European Court of Human Rights. And at the same time, we don't want to uh, fight with Russia over the formalities of uh, rules of procedures, and but we want to challenge Russia when it comes to the situation in Ukraine, uh, to the human rights and rule of law issues in Russia itself, in the Council of Europe, and they, they will be having to face some difficult debates. We had uh, uh, since then debates on the assassination of Boris Nemtsov, on the downing of MH17, uh, on um, the treatment of the municipal elections uh, in Moscow. I think for sure we will also be discussing the constitutional reform going forward with them. So this is to challenge Russia on the substance, but also make clear that Russia is an integral part of Europe uh, within the Council of Europe. And I've been personally uh, active as rapporteur in the Political Affairs Committee, for example, uh, on the case of the 24 uh, Ukrainian Navy soldiers that were captured in Russia. We demanded uh, a bit of a year ago their release. Happy to uh, observe that uh, those 24 sailors have now been free, following also our dis decision to, uh, to readmit Russia to the Council of Europe as part of an exchange of uh, prisoners uh, with Ukraine. So improving human rights situations in very specific circumstances for individuals is something that we also try to achieve in this context. And what we would like to do also is to encourage our colleagues from Ukraine and Russia to use the Council of Europe also to foster a dialogue that may positively accompany um, the Minsk process in the Normandy format towards peace uh, uh, and stability also in Ukraine. Thank you very much, Dr. Nick. This has been really, really interesting to just hear more about the role of, of protecting human rights and, and PACE's role in protecting human rights in Europe, something we all, of course, care very deeply about. Thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So thank you very much, Ewan and Dr. Nick. Um, we're now going to discuss some more national affairs, namely the upcoming election in Slovakia this weekend. 
so the Landlocked Central European country will head to the polls for the first time in four years on Saturday, 29th February. I should say that we're now Wednesday the 26th at the time of this recording. And it's looking to be a landmark election for the country. Um, and I'm very happy to have with me from Bratislava, uh, Merkas Shirovnikova, uh, a Bratislava-based freelance journalist and correspondent for the Balkan Investigative Reporting Network. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, hello. Nice to be here. Hi. Um, so the last election in Slovakia took place four years ago in 2016 and mm -hmm. was marked very much by the parliamentary entry of the far-right LSNS party and mm -hmm. the sharp decline of the social democratic smear party. And since then, even though they saw the decline, the social democratic party have uh, ruled the country through a couple of coalition governments, um, mm -hmm. correct? Yes, uh, it, it's still been the same government, just a few people have changed, a few minister and the prime minister, but the, the construction of the government stayed the same, the same parties were just changed in the middle of the term. So can you explain that shift that happened? I know it's been a very mm -hmm. turbulent time in Slovak politics, uh, marked by violence. Um, how's that impacted uh, government level politics since 2016? Yes, so it's been a very uh, worrying and interesting four years in Slovakia. In February 2018, a big event happened. Uh, Jan Kuciak, an investigative journalist, was uh, uh, murdered in his home with his fiance, which shocked the whole country, uh, mainly because he was writing about corruption and about links uh, between the Smer government and businesses and oligarchs and even organized crime. So there was this big uproar from the society. Uh, people went out to protest and uh, the protest turned out to be pretty big, uh, the biggest since the Velvet Revolution actually, and they, they were happening all over the country. They managed to ask the Prime Minister, Robert Fico, who's been in office for years and years. There's never been any other prime minister from Smer party before. Mm -hmm. He was a very strong figure and he was replaced by Peter Pellegrini from the same party who took over with uh, some new ministers and some old ones and they finished the term uh, normally. Yeah. So now, now we're going to elect uh, new, new parties so, into the parliament. So how do you expect um, the Social Democratic Party to fare this time around? Will they pay a big price for this chaos over the past four years, do you think? Yes, well, their popularity went down quite significantly. Uh, according to polls, they've lost over 10% uh, of uh, preferential votes, so they probably will uh, suffer in, in these elections, although they were still polling first in the in the recent polls. So they might win the election, but they might not be able to form a new coalition government. So they, they might get out of power eventually. It is a possibility, one of yeah. them. So um, let's talk a bit about LSNS. Their entry into parliament 2016 was quite remarkable. And if I'm correct, they're even in, if you compare them to other sort of far right fringe parties that have emerged in Europe over the past decade, uh, they're quite extreme, correct? Yes, they're definitely more radical than uh, other far-right parties in Europe. According to political experts, they uh, 
they evaluate them as uh, fascist, neo-fascist, or neo-Nazi. They use these symbols. They definitely use this ideology, although not as openly as they used to in the past. Uh, they've become much more moderate in their statements and in public. But you can see in their communication or social networks or in symbols that they use that they still uh, have very close links to fascist or neo-fascist ideology. So, yes, they are a threat. And so, they got to parliament uh, in 2016 with 14 members, with yeah. 14 seats and 8%. And the polls give them uh, significantly more this year. So will that increase, the likely increase for them, mean in terms of uh, increased influence? Have they been making any uh, progress in terms of how the other parties relate to them? Do you think, are we likely to see an increased influence of LSNS in Slovak politics after this election? Well, yes, it is a question. In the beginning, other political parties uh, professed that they wouldn't cooperate with LSNS and with Marian Kotleba, that they wouldn't vote with them or uh, work on any any proposals. But in the end, uh, Smer government ended up relying on their help with several proposals, including the most recent ones this week. So they have shown that they are able to work with them already. Uh, and even though LSNS is not in power, they were able to influence the, the discussion in the country quite a lot and bring out more hate and intolerance and, and well, some of the toxic topics that have not been here before. Mm. And, they've, and, and they've made more, they've made other parties more extreme in that sense as well. So that is the threat now too. If they have even more MPs, mm. they can do that even more effectively in the, in the future. I see. Um, so you said that there's a chance that um, the Social Democratic Party will lose the grip of government for the first time in a very long time. But LSNS that we've also talked about is not big enough or mainstream enough to sort of take on that role. Can you discuss what the other side of Slovak politics is? So if um, who is the other sort of realistic candidate um, for government leader going into this election? Yes, so we call this the democratic opposition or the possible democratic coalition for the future. And uh, the biggest party at the moment, according to polls, is Olano. The ordinary people and independent personalities led by Igor Matovic. Um, well, Europe probably hasn't heard about him much because he's been one of the smaller opposition leaders here. He has an anti-corruption movement, not a traditional standard party with standard structures. So uh, he, he hasn't been such a huge figure, at least not from a well, foreign point of view. But now, now he even has a possibility to win the election and form the new government. So he's one possible next prime minister. So what have been the big issues of this campaign? Fight against corruption, that, that, that is probably the biggest issue. And uh, fight for, for a bigger trust of public institutions, because Slovakia, according to Europe, uh, Eurobarometer, has the lowest trust in institutions in years at the moment. So parties are trying to bring reforms to increase people's trust 
in the state. And uh, the murder of, of Jan Kuciak has been a big topic, of course. And partly also these values or value questions, liberals versus con conservatives, that kind of thing. So we're now Wednesday, the election's coming up on Saturday. Uh, mm -hmm. What would you say the general mood is um, in the country from what you can see? And do you dare at this point to make any predictions about what the outcome will be of this landmark election? It is very hard to uh, predict what, what will happen. Even the political analysts can't say at the moment because there are too many variables and too many possibilities, according to <laughs> polls. But... Uh, Yes, there is a kind of hope for change, that's for sure. But for some people that represent the new democratic parties or the opposition parties uh, that, that go against what's matter represented. For some people, though, it means uh, the more radical change represented by LSNS and Marian Kotleba. So we'll see how that turns out, I guess, and which, which uh, approach wins in the end. And we're hoping for the more liberal democratic <laughs> approach to win it in the end. Thank you so, so much for speaking to us today and for giving us all this insight. Um, looking forward to the last few days of this campaign and to see what the what the outcome is. Hopefully it'll be good for Slovakia and Europe. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. It was thank nice you. talking to you. Thanks, bye-bye. Now to tie it all back together after two interviews which have taken us all the way across the European Union, we're going to do another who is who of European commissioners. Who have you drawn out of the European hat this week, Gabriel? So believe it or not, but I came out with Ilva Johansson, who's the commissioner for home affairs. So she's a Swedish politician, so she's from the same place as me, which is dope. And she's a member of the center-left Social Democratic Party. Uh, so prior to being nominated for the position as commissioner, she spent well over two decades like in the upper echelon of Swedish politics. So her CV includes being minister for schools, minister for welfare and elderly, uh, and most recently she was minister for employment between 2014 and 2019. Uh, and as the commissioner for home affairs, she'll mainly deal with issues surrounding asylum and migration, but also internal security, especially as it relates to preventing terrorist attacks. Uh, and she will work under the direct guidance of the Commissioner for Promoting Our European Way of Life, uh, Marguerite Schinas, uh, who we've actually already introduced to our listeners in a previous episode, in case you don't remember, Ewan. I, I do remember. In fact, I think I did it. That was me. Uh, um, yeah. I, I think she'll be incredibly honoured to know that you described her as dope um, <laughs> at the beginning of that piece there. I'm yeah. sure she really enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> I've got... Uh, a Lithuanian uh, commissioner uh, who is the commissioner for the environment, oceans and fisheries, Virginia Sienkiewicz. Um, as a Lithuanian politician, he was uh, is a member of the Lithuanian Farmers and Greens Union, who sit with the Greens and European Free Alliance group in the European Parliament. Sienkiewicz is the youngest commissioner in the von der Leyen Commission, being only 29, which uh, has made some of us feel a little bit disappointed, hasn't oh it, Gabriel? Um, his... Uh, <laughs> Political experience uh, has amounts to three years in Lithuania's parliament. He spent one year as a representative uh, and then became the Minister for the Economy and Innovation, which he was for two years before being approved as commissioner. Uh, 
His young age makes him the first commissioner born after the fall of the Berlin Wall and after the restoration of Lithuania's independence from the Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, he holds an MA from Maastricht University and was at one point the editor of the English language uh, news organization in Lithuania called the Lithuania Tribune. Now, just a little bit more about his role. Uh, Sienkiewicz, as uh, the Commissioner for the Environment, Oceans and Fisheries, is tasked with uh, conserving Europe's natural environment, and it truly is beautiful. Uh, he'll be promoting biodiversity and evaluating things like the common fisheries policy. Yeah, that's our two commissioners for this week, yeah. I guess. Come back next week for two more. Again, <laughs> if, you, if you know a commissioner and you want to come on, we should, I don't know. I hope they like our descriptions. It'd be really embarrassing if they... Yeah, well, I think we're quite on point. I think so. Anyway. Thank you for listening to the Europe Likes podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube to stay up to date with European politics between these episodes. And if you like what we do, which we hope you do, subscribe and review this podcast to keep us around for more. Also, make sure you tell people, all your friends, family, everyone you know about us. Um, you can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media. And on Instagram, just remember to put an underscore between Europe and Alex. See you next time. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenbrun. The managing editor was Polychronos Karepoulos. The producer and audio engineers were Raphael Peña-Rios and Leon Liesener. The script was written by our host and Matthew Nicholson. And the music was by Jose Alvarado. <laughs>